Amen. Praise the Lord for, for Lady Amber. Amen. Pray that the Lord would give us the grace this morning together to see just how much he loves us, to see just how great he is, and also to see just how luxurious, just how wonderful and deep and, and rich these verses that we have just read really are. This passage, if read prayerfully, carefully, patiently, humbly, and correctly, will lead us to worship Christ, will lead us to have a, a picture of Christ that I believe that all of our eyes long to see a, a picture of Christ's majesty and his greatness. Does your heart long to see Christ this morning? Does your heart long to see his majesty, his power, his love, his, his grace, his compassion, and his mercy? If it does, let's not cheat ourselves this morning by minimizing this story as just a, another miracle that is in the Bible. Let's not minimize this text to just be about this, this dead man. This text is, is so much more. This text is not just about what Christ did, but it's about what Christ is doing. It's about who he is. It's about his very nature. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forevermore. Now, anytime we talk about viewing God, anytime we talk about narrowing in and seeing God, we must not look to him through a microscope. For a microscope uh, it's, it's too small. We must look to him through a telescope because God is so vast and he is so good. He is so awesome. He is so big. So let's look through a telescope at this passage. Let's look at Jesus. Let's not read over it so quickly, but let's look at it carefully and let's allow our eyes to be drawn to our king. Verse 11 says, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nan. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nan, which begs the question, well, where is Jesus coming from? What has Jesus been doing? Jesus has been taking care of the family business. And I'm not talking about carpentry. I'm talking about his father's business. Jesus has been traveling. He's been going to and fro, doing the very will of God. In chapter 6, we see that Jesus has just preached, has just pontificated a powerful sermon on a mountain. And after preaching this powerful sermon on a mountain, the Bible says that he then goes to Capernaum. He travels to a city named Capernaum. And in verses 1 through 10, we see that while Jesus is in Capernaum, that Jesus meets a Gentile male, a, a powerful and an important Gentile male. And this Gentile male has a problem, and the problem that he has is, is that his servant has died. But he has faith. <laughs> he has faith that, that Jesus can, can heal him. He has faith that Jesus can deliver his servant without Jesus having to be present. He has faith. He says, Jesus, I am a man of authority. 
I know what authority is. I have the authority. And if I speak and tell one to come and tell one to go, they will do it. And I believe that if you would just speak a word. Does anybody have that type of faith in here today? <laughs> Lord, if you would just speak a word, everything will be all right. Jesus. Jesus is at all with this Gentile man's faith. And he says, no greater faith in all of Israel have I found. And he, he spoke the word and this man's servant was healed. Well, now Jesus is leaving from Capernaum. And he is headed to a city called Nan. But now look at the Bible, your Bible, and you'll, you'll, you'll see that he is headed to the city. And, and one thing you won't see is this next statement, but I'm going to tell it to you, that Jesus was headed to the city because Jesus was being led by the Spirit. And how do I know that Jesus was being led by the Spirit? Two reasons. Number one, because he's Jesus. But number two, because he did not lose his mind on the way to Nan. The Bible says that while Jesus was traveling to Nan, that there was a great crowd with him. Nan, whose name means beautiful or lovely. Nan, which is 25 miles away from Capernaum. Jesus is headed to a city called Nan after healing a man's servant. And the Bible says that there is a great crowd with him. A great crowd. Get this picture in your mind. 25 mile walk with a great crowd following him. Now. In other places in the synoptic gospels, we see this term great crowd used. The same term was used in uh, when Jesus healed uh, or fed 5,000 men, not including women and children. The Bible said that he fed a, a great crowd of people, which means that this great crowd could have been as large as 5,000. It could have been 1,000, it could have been 2,000, it could have been a, a few hundred. We don't know exactly how big it was, but it was a great crowd. And Jesus is in the middle of this great crowd. Can't you see him? For 25 miles, jockeying for position to get to Jesus. Can't you see them all touching him and asking him various questions for 25 miles? Can't you see him? Fighting and arguing because somebody is taken up and hogging all the time. Can't you see him? The little kids coming up to him saying, Lord, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Mama, where are we going? We don't know. Wherever he, he leads us. Can you see this great shepherd leading them to a city called Beautiful or called also known as the place of green pastures? Can't you see this shepherd leading these sheep to green pastures? How lovely is our Lord as he travels from Capernaum to this city called Nan. And as he gets to the city called Nan, the Bible says that as they drew near to the gate, this great crowd of people, that as they drew near to the gate of this town, that there was a funeral procession in process. A funeral procession. Now, we must understand that a first century Jewish funeral procession is a lot different than today's type of funeral. Today, when a person passes, we normally see flowers and give flowers. And we normally wear dark attire and dark clothing. And we normally comfort those who have lost the deceased by hugging them and by affirming them. And we normally then leave the sanctuary and put the body, which is in a casket, in the car, and we, we go to the cemetery and we have a, a pro procession by, by cars. Uh, but that wasn't the picture of a first century procession. 
That wasn't the way that a first century uh, uh, funeral tended to go. A first century funeral was different in one way in that uh, the body of the deceased was normally buried the same day. They normally tried to do their funerals around 6 in the evening. So it's very possible that this is around 6 o'clock in the evening. That Jesus and the, his disciples has been walking for 25 miles, which is about a, a, a day's journey. And they get there at 6 in the evening. And what they see is not what we would be accustomed to seeing. What they see is a different type of procession. The procession would be led by women. Women would lead the procession. In Galilee, there was a superstition that, that, that death came into the world as a result of women. Some husbands still believe that today. <laughs> Not me, amen. I know. I know that. I know that's right, baby. Amen. We know. Amen. Life. Life comes from women. Amen. It's first century. Amen. Women would start the procession. And right after the women, there would be uh, pallbearers, four of them, holding an open wicker casket of the deceased on their shoulders. And right after the pallbearers, there would be some professional flute players, normally two. And right after those professional flute players, there would be what's called wailing women. These were professional women who made a living showing up to funerals to cry. That's what they did for a living. They would come together and they would cry and weep and wail and make as much noise as possible so that all would know that this family is grieving. In fact, we see that this is a common tradition uh, with the Jews throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. We read in Amos chapter 5, verse 16, the prophet says this, They shall call the farmers to mourning and to welling, those who are skilled in lamentation. They were skilled in crying. And behind these wailing and crying women, there was a, the crowd. Normally, in a, a death uh, in a Jewish town, especially a small town, the entire town would be present. The entire town would show their respects, and they would walk in the procession along with the family that has lost. So I want you to see just how, how frantic this scene is. I want you to see how chaotic this scene is. I want you to feel and to hear the pain of the voices of these women who are, are wailing. I want you to, to see that when Jesus comes into this town and then when he gets here, he is met by a, what the, your text calls in verse 13, a considerable crowd, a, another great crowd, and they are all grieving. And Jesus is surrounded by people who most certainly want his attention. Jesus is surrounded by, by people who feel that they need him to speak to them. And, and as we see this picture, we want to remind ourselves that Jesus is here by choice. Jesus is here by choice. Jesus has traveled 25 miles with 20 uh, with a, a bunch of people by choice and Jesus was coming to the city of Nan for one woman. Jesus will go out of his way to reach one. Jesus goes out of his way. He, he allows himself to be put in inconvenient situations in order that he will reach the heart of one. Jesus is here not by happenstance. I don't believe in happenstance. I believe in providence. Things just don't happen. 
No matter how good or how bad they are, they don't just happen. There is a, a God who, who is the ultimate orchestrator. He is the, the ultimate planner. Jesus is not just going for a, a walk in the day. He is going because God has something for his son to do. God has someone that his son needs to speak to. God has a miracle that needs to be worked out in the life of one. And I'm so glad that I don't have to believe and depend on luck but I can be, be, believe and depend on the Lord. I'm so glad that I don't have to put my all my marbles in the lottery but I can put my marbles in the Lord because the Lord will show up when you need them. The Lord will put himself in an inconvenient situation and travel 25 miles just to reach one. When I was in college I had an interesting roommate my freshman year who liked very interesting music. He was on both ends of the spectrum. I mean, uh, the first type of music he liked was techno. And I don't know if you've ever heard techno, uh, but it is a preferred choice, amen. I'm from the city of Chicago, amen. I grew up where, where I didn't hear techno. So my freshman year, I would walk into my room after a long day of classes, and there would be this noise, this and he'll be walking around. <laughs> Just drove me up a while, a wall. And the second type of music that he liked was really peculiar in that he specifically had a a love for for pop music, but not just any type of pop music. The, the girly type of pop music. I mean, like the Britney Spears type of pop music. So one second he had techno on, the next second I was listening to Britney Spears. It was a, a weird mixture, you know, you just couldn't figure it out. But he fell in love with one song in particular. One song that still rings pretty heavily in my mind. It was by a woman by the name of Vanessa Carlton. And the song was called A Thousand Miles. You may remember the song. Uh, it was about a, a young lady who was basically singing that if I could walk a thousand miles uh, to, to just be with you tonight. And then it said, -na 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 and, and he just loved this song. If I, dun, 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 dun. You know I will walk 1,000 miles if I could just see you tonight. And, uh, and I, I uh, choice music, amen, and peculiar, interesting sound. But you know that song just resonated with so many people. After a while, everywhere I went, I, I just heard that song in a restaurant. I would hear this song, and it was just the penny, uh, the, the teeny pop song of the year because people can resonate with someone going out of their way to see them. Everyone wants to know that their loved one, that their boo, that their husband, that their wife will go the distance, walk 1,000 miles to see them. That's why some of y'all favorite song is still Diana Ross, uh, uh, Ain't No Mountain. High enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Because we believe and we want to believe that someone loves us enough to go through great obstacles to be with us and, and to enjoy us and to love us. And that is what the story of the Bible is. It is a story about God and how God loved us so much that he was willing to travel to earth from heaven. To heal our hurts, to heal our sorrows. He was willing to come down 42 generations. He was willing to, to come down the, the, the womb of a, of a virgin named Mary and walk the dusty streets of Jerusalem because he so loved the world. 
times where you feel like God's love is not near, like God is not present, may you remind yourself that God walked more than a thousand miles for you. That God traveled more than any other human being, any other person would travel for you. I want you to see Luke's narrative and to see that in Luke's narrative that Luke is showing us just the depths of Christ's love. He is, he is introducing us and introducing Theophilus to a love that the world has, has never seen and a, world that the, a love that the world has never known. And in this text we meet a widow. A woman who is a widow. A widow, young people, is a person who has lost their spouse. A woman who has lost her spouse. This woman had lost her husband. And to make matters worse, this is not her husband's procession. This is her child's procession. And this isn't just any child's procession. This is her only son's procession. You see the gravity of this situation. This was a huge deal. Not just for a woman to lose her husband. That's a, a, a heavy burden in itself. But for her also to lose a son. A son was extremely important. And her only son. How heavy of a burden was this? How heavy of a, 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 a burden was this on this widow? I believe that Jeremiah shows us how heavy of a burden it was for a woman to lose her only son. When he says this, these words to Israel, warning them about how painful it was going to be for them to go into captivity, he says to have a son, he says these words, oh my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes, mourn with bitter wailing for as for an only son, as for an only son. The prophet, in order to show Israel just how bad this captivity was going to be for them, just how bad they needed to mourn, he said, mourn as if you lost your only son. This woman is in grave trouble. This woman is lonely because she lost her husband and now because she lost her son. This woman is in a horrible predicament. She is now certainly going to live the rest of her life in poverty. She has no one to protect her. She has no one to provide for her. And then on top of that, we know human nature. This woman especially as a Hebrew in the first century with their understanding of the law was probably filled with guilt. She probably thought that she was under the curse of God. Now, in today's society, the way we handle with bad losses and, and feeling like we're cursed is we get angry with God and we get upset with God. But a first century Jew, yes, they may have been angry and upset with God, but they would have also been feeling guilty as if they had sinned and done something, and, and this was a result of God's wrath towards them. Now, if you look at your text, you'll notice that throughout this whole ordeal, this woman doesn't say a word about her pain. She doesn't speak. But the Bible speaks for her. The Bible tells us some possible things that she could have been thinking and some possible things that she, ways that she could have felt. The Bible speaks for her through a, another woman by the name of Naomi in the book of Ruth. A woman who had lost her husband and then lost her two sons. And the Bible says that afterwards she traveled back to her native land. And when she got to her native land, that she was so filled with bitterness, so filled with hurt, so filled with anger that she changed her own name. When people came to her, she said, don't call me Naomi. No, from now on, call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because she was at a point in life where she was living dead. 
She was alive, but yet she was dead. She was a zombie because her dreams and her passions had been taken away from her. And there are some Maras in here today. There are some widows of Nan in here today. There are some men in here today who are are upset with God or, or thinking that God does not love them or see their pain because they lost their pension or because they got laid off from their job and they can't find a job and you're walking around, you're alive, but yet you're dead. There are some widows of Nan in here who lost their innocence at a young age forcibly and, and is wondering how and why God has not done anything. There are some Maras in here. And it is important that if you are that person that you see Jesus, that you see exactly how far he is willing to go for those who love him, that you see just how much he cares. As we look at this text, we see that Jesus does a few things. The first thing that we said this text tells us is that Jesus saw her, that Jesus saw her in times of difficulty, in times of loss, in times when our marriage feels like it's crumbling, in times when sin is, is, is overtaking us and we feel like we should just give up trying, we must remember that Jesus sees us. Don't rush over those three words, the Lord saw her. Don't just rush over those words. Think about what this text is saying, that Jesus was in the midst of thousands of people, that Jesus was being probably questioned and burdened by thousands of people, that this woman was probably surrounded in a huddle by hundreds of people, people who mourn a lot better than she does. She's the one that's really mourning. There's professionals mourners that's out mourning her. But Jesus takes his eye, ignores those who are around him. He searches for the one who is in the most pain. He searches for the one who really needs his help. Can you see him looking past the procession? Can you see him looking past the pallbearers? Can you see him ignoring the wailing women? Can you see him ignoring the crowd? Can you see him looking right at this woman? And the Bible says he saw her. It's not a a quick glance. It wasn't a, mm, there she is. It was a, mm, there she is. It was a, I know her. It's some things going on in her heart. I, I can see that there's some areas in her life that she, she needs my help in. She said, mm, I, I see that she's lost her husband. Mm, I, I've seen that she's lost her son. Let me intervene on her behalf. Look at the scriptures, we have to remind ourselves that that Jesus sees us, that Jesus does not ignore our pain, that God is not finding delight in us being hurt and us having difficulties, that God is a God of compassion and a God of love and a God that cares deeply about us. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, the Bible says these words. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Why? What are the eyes of the Lord doing? Then he goes on to say, to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless or helpless towards him. That's God's description. God's job description. Part of his job description is to look throughout the earth and to see who needs his help. To see those who are humble. Those who are broken. Those who cannot help themselves. Those who are poor. Forgotten. Marginalized. Walked over. Pushed around. His job is to look and to help. 
A U of L recruiter has a job. Part of his, his job is to go and to search throughout the earth, to search throughout the United States for, for talent, high school talent. And when he finds that high school talent is to, to grant them with an opportunity to play for the school, opportunity to have a scholarship, God's job, God's livelihood is searching the earth to see who is blameless, to see whose heart is, is hurting and whose heart is crying out to him. And the Bible says that he helps those. He sees you. Not only did he see her, but the Bible says that he had compassion on her. Jesus doesn't just see us, but Jesus' heart feels us. Jesus' heart feels us. And this is the message that we must tell our young people. This is the message we must tell our youth as they are going through high school or elementary school and are being bullied and are, 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 are tempted to, to allow themselves to, to go into peer pressure and tempted to allow themselves to just become another person in the crowd in order to please other people. We have to tell our young people that there is one whose eyes is going to and fro and who, who sees your pain in your heart and who has died for your pain, who has died for your hurt. A lot of times we handle grief and we handle loss and we handle disappointment in a way that God has not designed us to handle disappointment. God has not designed us to run to temporal things for healing. He has not designed us to run to marijuana for healing. Marijuana is a depressant anyway. Smoke it for a minute and feel good. Feel crappy later. Same with alcohol. I'm drinking my sorrows away. No, you're drinking yourself to sorrow. When I was in Costa Rica in 2006 on a mission trip, I had the, we had the privilege of going and ministering to some people who are outcast in society. And specific, uh, specifically in one town, there was a, a group of auto workers who were really poor. And these auto workers were really mistreated. And I remember we went into this, this, their, their job. They allowed us to come in and to, to feed them lunch. And we ordered pizza for them. And we just sat around and we talked to these workers. Of course, we had a translator. And my pastor at the time said, Jamal, I want you to pray to the Lord because I want you to share the gospel. I'm going to see if they will just allow you to preach the gospel to them. I remember praying to the Lord and saying, Lord, help me to reach these people. There's such a cultural gap and a language gap. Show me how to, to communicate to them that you see them, that you feel them, that you know that their pain. And the Lord began to allow my eyes to see what their projects were, what their life was filled with. And their life was filled with fixing cars, fixing things that were broken, fixing things that were made a mess of. And the Lord said to them, he says, listen, you are here to fix a problem. You are here to fix these broken vehicles. When people's vehicles break down, they bring them to you to fix them because you are like the designer. You know how to get to the core of the problem because you know cars. He says, well, each of us are like cars, so to speak. We have been created by a designer However, we have, are not perfect and we were not built to, to be perfect. We have a, a sin nature and like cars get dents and, and cars get broken into and cars break down. So do we break down because of our sin, because of our lostness, because of our nature of Adam. But a wise person knows who to take their car to to get it fixed. And a, a wise person also should know who to take their soul to to get it fixed. His name is Jesus. 
His name isn't Muhammad. His name isn't Confucius. His name isn't Buddha. His name isn't Nuke Nuke, Bebe, John John, or Lil Ray Ray. His name is Jesus, Jesus Christos, the Lord of Lords, Kyrios. But many of us, when we are in grief and when we are in pain, what we do, instead of taking our hearts to the Lord, instead of trusting the Lord, knowing that the Lord sees us and that the Lord is a compassionate Lord, what we do is we turn up the stereo system and we drown the Lord out with music. We ignore the clanking. We ignore the banging. We ignore the breaking down. But God says, turn down the music and and pull into this pit stop and and allow me to touch you. Look at Jesus in this text. Look at him. Don't close your eyes to him. We're, We're almost there. Jesus shows us in this text just how compassionate he is. The Bible says that he went to the woman and he said, do not weep. Now, that may be kind of rude of me to say that to a person who is grieving, who has just lost everything. Why? Because they're hurting. Because when we hurt, we weep. But Jesus can say do not weep because Jesus knows that he's about to fix our heart. Jesus told the woman, he said, listen, do not weep. Not because he was being insensitive, but because he knew that she was just about to waste some tears unnecessarily. He says, I've already seen you. My heart's already moved on your behalf. Stop having a fit. Stop crying. It's about to be okay. And God is saying that to somebody this morning. Stop weeping. Stop losing your hair. Stop losing sleep. Stop getting on the phone and telling everybody, woe is me, and see that the Lord sees you. He never ignores his children. Now, when the Lord comes, he may not speak what you want him to speak. But I'd rather him speak what is true than him speak what I want to hear. Some people just tell us what we want to hear. God tells us what we need. comforted her, he came to her and told her that he, he, he saw her. He says, listen, child, my child, do not weep. Like a, a small child coming to their parents after playing on a play, playground and they're, they're crying and they're looking at their mother and saying, mom, I'm about to die. And the mother looks and says, this is just a, a small scratch child. Do not weep. You will be okay. And I don't know what you are going through, what you are feeling in your own life, what you have given up on. Maybe it is your marriage. Do not weep. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and I can guarantee you that he will direct your path. And how can I guarantee you that he will direct your path? Because he said that he will direct your path. And if anybody knows anything about God, God does not waste words. God is a God who comes through on his words, who comes through on his promise. He told the prophet, he says, my word will not return unto me void. Trust in the Lord. Jesus is so smooth. So cool in this text. Everybody's panicking, touching him. What we going to do, Jesus? What you mean, what we going to do? Just so smooth. Just walks up to her middle of a procession. This is a procession. I mean, put this in modern terms. This is like Jesus driving a car and just cutting off a funeral procession. Getting out and talking to the ones who's grieving. Everybody's panicking, saying, what is this man doing? And he just strolls on by. Says, don't weep. But I I really like like, like, like this because because he's acting like a king. He's he's acting like who he is. Uh, the Bible says he didn't put up a big fuss. He didn't have to wave his hand and say, everybody stop. He didn't draw attention to himself. He didn't tell the, will, the, the welling women to please stop and make, stop making all that noise. He didn't even speak to them. He just went to the woman. Don't, don't weep. You know, when you know that you've got something, you don't got to go and tell everybody what you got. You don't got to make a whole lot of noise. You don't got to go out there and put up bulletin boards and signs about yourself and promote yourself. You just kind of stroll on. You just don't weep. And the Bible says that 
after that, he, he, he did something amazing. He, he, he took a step or two back, and, and he just touched the, the, the boy. He, he touched the child. And, uh, he spoke to the child, I'm sorry, and said these words. He says, young man, I say to you, rise. Rise. He didn't do a magical chant. He, he, he didn't go and get on Google and do all this other stuff. He didn't ask everybody to fast for five minutes and pray with them. He just said, get up. And that's the type of God that we serve. It don't take him a whole long lot of time to do what he's going to do. All he has to do is speak and say, young man, arise. And how do I know that? Well, one is because I read it in the Bible, but two, because I experienced it myself. See, I once was dead. I, I once was caught up in the world system. I, I, I once was trying to fill my heart with, with marijuana and fill my heart with, with temporary pleasures of this world. I, I once wanted to go with the homeboys and to, to get wasted and try to find somebody to make my pain go away from the day. But one day God looked at me and said, son, rise, get up. That's the type of God we serve. And and some of your parents got some children that you need the Lord to speak to. And the Lord is saying, do not weep. Just trust me. I'm the one that can raise the dead. I'm the one that created your child. If you raise them up the way that you try to raise them up, just speak in faith and know that I'm just going to tell them, rise when it's time to rise. I've got that power in my hand to just speak. Jesus, the same one who was in Genesis chapter 1, the same one who was a part of Elohim, that, that divine Godhead, that Trinitarian uh, Godhead. He, he's the same one who said, let there be light. Is the same one who said, get up, boy. Get up, young man. But you know what I like about this text? Is that after Jesus heals the boy, the Bible says that the boy goes on and he's speaking, he's talking. He's running his mouth. Jesus doesn't say not one word to the boy. Because the boy was not healed because of his situation. <laughs> the young man wasn't brought out of the, of, of, from death, wasn't brought back from death because of who he was. <laughs> because he was somebody great. No, he was brought out because of his mother's situation. He was, he was saved as a result of his mother's travailing, his mother's pain. And, and some of us are in here today because of a praying mother, because of a praying grandmother and a praying father and, and a praying cousin, a, a praying pastor and some praying deacons. And, and God is that type of God. That he hooked us up even when we didn't want to be hooked up. <laughs> he made a way even when we didn't know that we needed a way. He, he gave us peace when we thought that the party was all right. That's what we call God's unmerited grace. Jesus heals this boy for his mother. He doesn't even deal with the child. When he wakes up, when this man wakes up, he, he, he jumps up. Jesus doesn't even talk to him. He just hands him back to his mother. See, Jesus is not just a God that sees. He's not just a God that feels, but he's a God that moves. And when you know that he moves, you can shout in the midst of your situation. When you know that he moves, you can shout in the midst of your pain. When you know that he moves, you can just say to yourself, Jesus is on the way. I don't know what mile marker he's at. Maybe he's at the first mile marker. Maybe he's at the tenth mile marker. Maybe he's at the twentieth mile marker. But I know that he's on his way. And when he shows up, my grandmother used to say, he showed enough, shows out. When Jesus shows up, things start to move. When Jesus shows up, Deliverance starts to take place when Jesus shows up. Burden starts to come off when Jesus shows up. I'm glad you showed up this morning, but all I need is for Jesus to show up. Because he can make dead things come to life. He can make your marriage come to life. But most importantly, 
He can deliver you from your sin sick soul. Give you a new taste for holiness and righteousness. The Bible says that the crowd looked at him and they, they saw what Jesus had done. And fear seized them. And this isn't a fear like, oh my goodness, I can't move, I'm scared. This is a, a, a fear, a, a awe, a, a reverence, a who is this? You know, that, this is that, 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 that manner type of response. What is this? Who is this? Who, who is this that can cause the dead to rise? Who, who is this that can regulate my mind? Who, who is this that can deliver me from prison and save me and give me a testimony? Who is this that can restore my broken past with men and give me a heart? for holiness. Who, who is this that can take the taste of cocaine out of my mouth and, and give me a, a taste of praise? Who, who is this? Bible says fear sees them and, and when fear seizes somebody you know how they respond? They respond by glorifying God. Can you see these people praising God? Magnifying God? Glorifying God, exalting the name of God. And they said, they said, they, this, this must be a, a prophet, truly a prophet. Truly a prophet has, has visited us. These people had not seen a prophet in over 400 years. Intertestament, part of the Bible. 400 years from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But God refused to speak. Last time that they heard of a, a child being raised was by a prophet named Elijah. It was just three to four miles down the road from where they are. Oh, and they said, truly, a prophet has visited us. I'm telling you, God is so good. God is so awesome. He visits us even when we don't know that he's visiting us. Even during that intertestament period, even though he wasn't speaking verbally, he was still moving. Because it's in the intertestament period in which the canon was put together. It's in the intertestament period in which the first uh, uh, structure of the church was put together. As they moved from just having temple worship to having synagogues. God, even when it seems like he isn't speaking and it seems like he isn't moving, is always at work. But when he shows up, it's a show enough good thing. The Bible says that they saw that this was not just a prophet, but the, I like how they responded. They said, for truly God has visited us. They thought that God had visited them just as God had visited Israel through Moses and just as God had visited Israel through Jeremiah and through Elijah and, and through these other prophets. But little did they know that God was actually visiting them in body. This wasn't Jeremiah. This isn't John the Baptist. This isn't Elijah. This is he who is greater. He who Isaiah talked about. He who Moses looked forward to seeing. This is Emmanuel, God with us. <laughs> Little did they know that God had just not visited them in a casual way through a prophet, but that God had actually been there. Closing eye. Story is told of Denzel Washington having an interview. And in his interview, Denzel was asked, Denzel, out of all the movies that you've done, what is your best performance? And Denzel paused and he looked around and he began to think and the interviewer thought maybe he didn't hear. He said, Denzel, of all of your great movies and your great performances, what is your best performance? And Denzel was still silent and so the interviewer said, I'm going to help you out a little more. And he started naming some of his movies. And named one movie. Denzel says, no, that's not my best performance. Named another movie. says, no, that's not my best performance. Named another movie. said, no, that's not my best performance. Denzel said, I think that my greatest performance is still to come. You know, when I, I read this text, I, I think about all God's greatest performances. And if I could ask God, Lord, what is your greatest performance? What, 
is your greatest act? Uh, uh, God, was your greatest act, Genesis chapter 1, when you spoke the world to existence? God, could, I could see him smile and said, no, that was a good one, but that wasn't my greatest one. Was your greatest performance when you led the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, that was a great act when I split the Red Sea and everybody was afraid. And No, but that wasn't my greatest performance. God, what was your greatest performance? Was your greatest performance when you had Jesus come down 42 generations through the womb of Mary? No, that was a great performance, but it wasn't my greatest performance. Was it when you had Jesus raise this widow's son? No, that wasn't my greatest performance. What about what about Lazarus, Lord? No, that's not it either. What, what about when you allowed Jesus to be captured and to travel the Via Della Rosa and to have nails put in his palms in order that he would absorb your wrath, in order that we would no longer be held guilty for our sins but have his righteousness imputed upon us? Is, is that your greatest performance, God? No, no, that's not my greatest performance either. Now, that's, it's up there. It's really close. You're getting close. Well, what about when, when you put them in a tomb and how you raised them from the third day? Is that your greatest performance? No, that's not my greatest performance. What about when you had them ascend into heaven and you, you allowed him to sit on your right hand and you, you allowed him to make intercessors for a knucklehead like me? Is that your great? No, that's not my greatest performance. Son, let me tell you what my greatest performance is. Uh, uh, my greatest act is not yet seen. It's, it's on its way. It's, it's when I make all things new. It's, it's when I come back in the sky and, and I take you to a land called no more. Does anybody know that land called no more? A land where there's no more crying. No more cancer, no more bills, no more sin, no more selfishness, no more brokenness. A land where we can finally see the glory of the Lord and say, look what the Lord, look what the Lord has done. His best acts is yet to come. If you just put your eyes on the eternal one <laughs> you'll be able to make it through today's storm you'll be able to have peace in the middle of recklessness you'll be able to have joy unspeakable joy his best work is yet to come yes it is yes it is I know he delivered you from some stuff, but you ain't seen nothing yet. Father, we thank you because the best is yet to come. One day, one glad morning, Lord, we'll take off this mortality and we'll become like you, Father. And we can't wait to that day. Help us to see, Father God, that you are here with us. That you see us, that you feel us. That you move on our behalf. That you have given us already the best that we could ever ask in your son. And that you're bringing all things to completion. In Jesus' name.